Today's episode of the KingCast is brought to you by Nothing But Blackened Teeth by Cassandra Ka. Nothing But Blackened Teeth is published by Nightfire, which is an imprint of Tor Books. It's a Heian-era mansion that stands abandoned and its foundation rests on the bones of a bride and its walls are packed with remains of the girl's sacrifice to keep her company. It's the perfect venue for a group of thrill-seeking friends brought back together to celebrate a wedding. But the house has secrets too. Lurking in the shadows is a ghost bride with a black smile and a hungry, hungry... You thought I was going to say hippos. I meant heart. Hungry, hungry heart. In addition to writing novels, Cassandra Kaw is an award-winning game writer. Their work can be found in places like Fantasy and Science Fiction, Lightspeed, and Tor.com. Upcoming Nightfire projects of Cause include a novel co-written with New York Times bestselling author Richard Cadry, The Dead Take a Train, and another horror novella. Sign up right now for Nightfire's monthly newsletter. You can follow them on social media at Tor Nightfire uh, or go to TorNightfire.com. That is right. Well done, Eric. We have another sponsor this week, and it's a sponsor we had last week, but uh, there is a Halloween connection here, so uh, we're going to keep it going while we're dealing with these Halloween episodes. Uh, we're we're talking about Paul Brad Logan's Hallelujah. Uh, what's the connection between that and the new Halloween Kills? Well, Paul Brad Logan's the screenwriter on next year's trilogy capping Halloween Ends, a.k.a. the sequel to the movie all our recent guests have appeared in. Hallelujah is a rip-roaring dark comedy about a sad sack type who's attempt to get his hands on a little bit of cash, blows up right in his face, putting him at odds with a rough cast of characters in a small desert town, including a 10-year-old preacher possessed with apocalyptic visions. It's a little bit Coen Brothers, a little bit Flannery O'Connor, and a little bit horror. Hallelujah is now available in paperback on Amazon.com. And we got... <laughs> oh, we got more. Yeah, we, we got had more, so much baby. more. The hits just keep on coming. Because we also have to remind you that DeviantArt and Fangoria have teamed up for a fall horror challenge. So if you're one of those illustrative types and can draw and make interesting looking art and you also are into creepy shit, then this is the contest for you. Take your nightmares and turn them into dreams when you can win a year long contract with Fangoria, as well as those fancy Huian tablets and pens. 15 total winners will be chosen by a panel of judges that includes Darcy the Mail Girl herself, Diana Prince, Deviant Art Staff, as well as 100% Soft and Attack Peter. The deadline to enter is October 27th, and you can find more info at DeviantArt.com. That's right. And one little shout out here for our uh, benevolent overlords over at Fangoria, who've been keeping the game going strong since 1979. 40 years later, their magazine's better than ever, with each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. So head on over to Fangoria.com to learn more and subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% off your yearly subscription. I think that does it, Eric. I think we have run the entire gauntlet. Are we ready to get on with that show, Scott, do you think? Let's hit it, dude. All right. On with the show. Hi, my name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Bad love, bad love! You guys wanna go see a dead body? Well, sometimes, that is better. 
Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Eric Vespi. And I'm Scott Wampler. And we are your hosts. Today we have another cast member from Halloween Kills on the show to talk a little bit about Michael Myers and someone far scarier, Greg Stilson. The topic is the dead zone and our guest has an intimate knowledge of that world. He's an actor you know from his decade-spanning work in film and television, being a cornerstone player for the late great John Hughes and stuff like 16 Candles, Breakfast Club, Weird Science, Vacation... Uh, outside of the Hughesiverse, he also has a memorable and diverse slate of roles in stuff like Edward Scissorhands, Six Degrees of Separation, Pirates of Silicon Valley, The Dark Knight, the vastly underseen Bodied, by the way. Lo- love that Bodied. Uh, and of great. course, yeah, and of course, the six season run playing Johnny Smith in the TV adaptation of Stephen King's The Dead Zone. You can next see him playing the grown up and super pissed off Tommy Doyle in David Gordon Green's Halloween Kills. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Anthony Michael Hall to the KingCast stage. Thanks for coming on the show, man. Hey, guys. Good to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. How are you feeling about Halloween Kills? By the time this airs, people will have seen it um, yeah. since we're doing a whole series of these. But uh, are you excited for it to to get out there? Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you guys, I don't think I've ever been more pumped about a project. And and with as we saw in many industries with all the delays of COVID and, and the health mm. requirements. Yeah. So it got pushed a year. But in some ways, I think it's cool because it created an even bigger anticipation for the, you know, the massive fan base that it has. So um, I've been really enjoying, like a lot of people, I'm on YouTube a lot and researching stuff and finding stuff of interest. And uh, I really got into watching all these reaction videos from people that are fans and, you know, sort of fan sites and horror sites. And so I've been really enjoying the buildup, to be honest, you know, but it's going to be something special. I'm really proud of uh, my involvement and the fact that I was you know, uh, welcomed into that the family, you know, the franchise. So it was really great experience. Now, when you say you watch like reaction, are you talking about like trailer reaction stuff? Or are you watching people like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Cause that's all I could get. So I was just hungry. Like a lot of Halloween fans, just hungry for information about it. And I did remember hearing like there was a bunch of great early reactions and, and reports about the trailer, you know, and also the screening last year when they did some test screenings. So just like all the fans of, of, uh, the Halloween franchise, you know, um, I've been tracking it, you know, I'm really looking forward to this release. So I'm really pumped about it. Yeah. I found, I found that like, I, I never once was like a reaction viewer guy, right? It's kind of like uh, how a lot of kids today like to watch people play video games. I'm like, well, just play the video right. game. You know? right. Yeah. I don't watch somebody react to a movie, but like I found myself falling down that rabbit hole during lockdown because I felt it, I couldn't figure out why uh, but I think I ultimately came to that I just missed watching movies with people that that is such a big part of my life <laughs> yeah. no you're right so That's like part of it. Yeah. you know yeah and and a lot of these people are like young people who have never seen you know a classic movie and you know I have wasn't able in that year to see my my young nephews and that's kind of my role with them is to introduce them to my favorite movies and show them stuff that I think they'll like that they've never right. seen before. And so I was kind of scratching that itch watching, you know, all these young millennials right. or Gen Z or whatever, you know, they're, they're called now. It's like, I, uh, you know, watching them watch stuff like, yeah, you know, I don't know, like fair Spuler, the shining or, you know, all you know, blazing saddles for the first time. And right. just, I became oddly curious to see how they would react to some of these movies. And especially in that scenario where everybody's kind of isolated and, yeah. You know. Great point. I mean, I had the same take on it, just watching stuff. And like you said, I think a lot of it came from the vacuum of missing the experience of going to movies or 
like we were talking about before the show, you know, sporting events, concerts, anything, you know, where we need that social interaction. It's a big part of being alive, obviously. But yeah, like yourself, I had the same interest, you know, it was really cool. And it's also kind of like unofficial, you know, reviews really too. So I think that it's, it's yeah. been really fun. And with this, it has such a, you know, I think the anticipation build was a good thing in some ways. You know, I know, I remember reading some articles with Jason Bloom and he said that it was important no matter what he was going to release it this year. But you know, this being the 12th film in this install, you know, in this franchise, it's an amazing mm-hmm. thing. And what I can tell you is I, I, I did see the film a, about a week ago with my wife and um, it's incredible, man. I mean, it really is just high octane, like full throttle from start to finish. And, and then there's also the appropriate moments of suspense and buildup that are really key to, to horror films, obviously, and slashers and all that. So I'm just really excited about it, you know. And what right. was really cool is that David Gordon Green and Danny McBride, I was a huge fan of these guys. I loved all their HBO series. And, you know, oh, the yeah. Way, yeah, the way this evolved for me is my representatives at a company called Untitled, the management company I work with, they're great guys. They brought this to my attention back in 2019. It was like the end of the summer. And it came up as, you know, an opportunity and, you know, what I want to screen test and the whole thing. And so what I did was I, I requested a meeting with David Gordon Green and we met when he was in town and this guy just couldn't be cooler. He was just great, super down to earth. And we just started talking about process. And, you know, at the time he told me how he and his wife and family moved back East as did Danny and his wife and kids. And, and they moved in back to Charlotte, South Carolina and, you know, just how they had kind of set up their life doing comedies and then alternating that with this franchise. And they were just, he was just super cool. You know, I just had a great experience hanging out. So we, we spent about an hour, you know, at this hotel, uh, here in Los Angeles where he was staying and he was just super cool. He was wearing a Bob Seger concert t-shirt and just sitting at the bar having a beer, you know, like he knew the bartender cause it's obviously like the spot he stays at, you know what I mean? And the guy couldn't have been cooler. He really was great. So we had a great meeting and I got a better sense of kind of the direction he wanted to take the movie. And, and then from there I went in and, you know, did my best with the, with the screen test. And I'm just so thankful. I mean, truly grateful to be a part of it, you know, because it's such a huge, massive audience. I mean, I don't know what you compare it to. It's like the star Wars of horror genre, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's huge. I was going to say that before when you were talking about the trailer reaction videos, because yeah. it's not, it's not just that it's a trailer for an anticipated movie. It's also the horror community, which is, totally. you know, just as passionate, if not more so than, you know, say, uh, fans of superhero movies and particularly in these new Halloween movies that are, you know, toying around with the mythology from, you know, the original, you know, you're playing Tommy Doyle in this one, all grown up. And, and as Eric noted, very pissed off as, <laughs> as he rightfully should be, uh, middle-aged, you know, so you, yeah. So you, you really are like stepping into, yeah. you know, Man, you, Eric and I have both talked to enough famous folks about doing these franchise movies, and that's a common refrain. In this one, no shit, that's true. Like, you know, this is a, a major franchise, and, you know, you're playing a, well, not a storied character. Tommy Doyle wasn't in, like, all of them. But you know what I'm saying. Like, no, it's oh, a yeah, part, of the, part of the history of it, big yeah. time. And to be very honest, guys, over the last two years, I've really grown in, in the knowledge of that because... There's so many details. For example, in the original film, Tommy was the one who says, you know, no one, uh, you can't kill the boogeyman. He kind of unleashed that thing, yeah. which is a huge part of this franchise in particular. The idea of yeah. Myers always coming back, you know, as the the pissed off brother of, of Laurie Strode. <laughs> yeah. Just can't kill this guy. Right. Right? 
So, you know, I was really psyched and, and it was actually also a very much a learning curve for me too, kind of figuring out from all the different fans of horror and particularly this franchise, you know, and all the different age ranges of like what their take on it was and what they liked about it. Even all the interim films, you know, from Halloween two, all the way up to 2018, you know, so it was really interesting, you know, learning curve. And it just increased. It just got me more and more pumped about it because the way I look at it is when I work as an actor, I just kind of, I like to go my own way. I check on the director. I make sure he's getting what he needs. But when it's something in dramatic and intense like this, I just figured the best thing I could do is just go all out. What they've given me is a really great role. It's it's truly like a heroic role. And the other thing too, that was sort of echoed when I got to the set, when I saw just the humility and the kind of like good spirit with which David and, and Danny created their team. You know, like they they found a high school, you know, college with a lot of guys that are still on their crew. So the crew that they've had have been with them for 15 years. So that sense of loyalty, like I've only read about that with people like Clint Eastwood, you know, just loyal and part of their team, their production team. So we went down to Wilmington, North Carolina. We made the movie at uh, what used to be the old Dino De Laurentiis Studios. I think it's owned by Sony now. And it was just a great experience. You know, like that's a lot of the fun of, of being an actor for me over the years is, you know, just showing up in a new place, being, you know, a sense of exploration. You just kind of get dropped down in a new place and, and you're working with a new group of people. And there's a lot of unknowns, you know, with this, there was a great sense of familiarity because all these people have been working together for a long time. So they have kind of a shorthand, but also just the spirit of which the work is approached. Everybody had a really good time doing it. And then you get there and you start tapping into all these different artists like Chris Nelson, right? The guy who created Myers. I mean, there's a whole team that he has that puts the look together for the shape and all these great mm-hmm. actors. And, you know, it was really cool. And Jamie Lee, in this case, she didn't show up until about, I think, two, um, like a little more than two weeks into the production. And she was great. You know, the way I met her was really funny. All of a sudden, I just saw these two bloodied hands in front of my face. I've <laughs> 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 been shooting some stuff at the Haddonfield Hospital. And so that was my intro- my reintroduction to Jamie Lee was I just saw these two bloodied hands. And then she's like, hi. And she gave me a big hug and she was really cool. So it was just so cool to be really embraced by this whole family, you know, just Jason Blum and Blumhouse and Jamie Lee and and David Gordon Green and and Danny just meant so much to me, you know, to be a part of it. So I really hit the ground running when I was doing the film. I was just so stoked, you know, in terms of the the material and and the role I had and and obviously all the people I was working with, because it's a great collaboration, as you guys know, making films, you know, it's really a, right. It's a fun, uh, great experience when you when you see it that way you know and right. and you've worked with quite the list of directors over the years you know from vacation to your work with john hughes to edward scissorhand like i think eric and i i think i eric maybe i'm not speaking for you on this but i i grew up watching your movies we mm-hmm. we no, can't I, I, well, I was going to say we came of age, but that sounds weird. <laughs> we did, we were not uh, ushered into puberty by your movies, but but we're certainly like, you know, you were like a, a fixture in in my childhood. So it's it's really interesting to talk to you at a base level. Uh, I'm curious if you're willing to answer a couple of nerdy questions we might have about your. Yeah, uh, no, let's go for it. Your, no, I, I embrace it all. I mean, I'm, I'm just grateful good. for the run I've had, you know, whether it's the John Hughes stuff. I mean, you mentioned uh, vacation. That was how Ramus, you know, so I really yeah. did. I was really Who's fortunate. Great. Yeah, he was incredible. You know, he really was. And they actually shared a lot of common traits when I look back, you know, they were both, first of all, just guys that love to laugh. They were both great writers, but I also felt they had a great talent as collaborators, as filmmakers. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't ever just about, okay, we got to shoot what's on the page with Harold and also John Hughes. It was always like, 
let's shoot what we have and then we could try stuff, you know? So we would do two or three takes or four, you know, the way it was written. And then we might digress and try different things, you know? So that was a really great aspect of working with those guys when I was a kid. I really looked up to them, you know, and, and John Hughes and I just became great friends. You know, it was like, he was a big brother to me, you know, he was really just the best. Um, but Harold was too. They had a great joy and a great sense of, uh, fun about them when they were doing the work, you know? And it's interesting because they became kind of early benchmarks for me. I would always compare other people that I'd worked with, you know, just in, in the privacy sure. of my thoughts to, to those guys. And they were just really kind of standalone. So I was really fortunate in my life and my career that at a young age, I got to start, you know, working with those guys, really. Right. right. Yeah, I never got, obviously, you know, and my our paths never crossed before he passed, you know, so I never met uh, John Hughes. But I did get to interview uh, Harold for the Ice Harvest uh, he came through Austin once. And so I got to sit down and, you know, just have, you know, bullshit with him about one of his movies. And, right. and he was just like the nicest dude in the world and just everything that I would want, you know, as a kid growing up watching Ghostbusters and stuff, you yeah. know, that's, that's who yeah. I'd want Egon to be. That's who I'd want this guy who, you know, has this other side as this very talented filmmaker. Um, Isn't that great? You know, that's he, great he was everything story. I wanted. Yeah, no, it's great to hear that, you know. Because it's so true, you know, it's such a, a privileged thing. You know, we, we all move around this world in life and we see people fulfilling their duties or whatever they're doing with their work, you know, and sometimes people lack joy in their work. They're not always satisfied with it. So we're very fortunate to be in entertainment, to work. And, you know, at the end of the day, man, it's make believe, right? So it's it's a really fun right. thing. And and for me, what, you know, it's that old saying, I don't know where it's derived from in literature, but the idea of standing on the shoulders of giants, it's always really resonated with me and in my career and my life from a boy all the way up till now, you know, I've had great people that I worked with that gave me opportunities and taught me the right things. And, you know, you just learn so much too, as you know, when you're working on a set, you're kind of just sponging it up from every department. So it's, it's a sort of ongoing education, you know, and collaboration when you're making films. So I'm really uh, just grateful for it, man. I really am. Well, I want to ask you something very hyper-specific. I'm jealous of you for one day of shooting in particular that you've gotten to do. Um, and I have been since I was a kid as somebody who just adores uh, John Candy and loves roller coasters. The fact that you got to spend a day just riding a roller coaster with John Candy. That's like cool. today. It, like I'm, I'm literally sitting here right now going, you piece of shit. I want to ride a roller coaster with John Candy. <laughs> That's so funny. I, I don't know if you if you have well, any uh, no, memories of, of working with, yeah. with John, but I do. Oh, good, yeah, give me that story. Into it for you. Yeah, no, it's great. So we're it's 1982 and we're filming uh, Vacation and we're shooting at Magic Mountain. This was actually part of a reshoot that John was hired. So basically, the original ending called in the way Harold had written it and in the studio approved was that basically Clark takes Roy Wally, who's essentially supposed to be Roy Disney, right? It's supposed to be one of the Disney brothers, yeah. essentially, right? But he takes him hostage and he's sitting poolside. I remember we shot at this beautiful mansion in Beverly Hills with a huge backyard, just what you'd picture a Beverly Hills mansion backyard to look like, you know? And what happened was they tested the picture and everybody was like bummed out, the audience, because they wanted to see the Griswolds make it to, to Wally World. So right. this sets up the the reshoot, which then I found out that they got John Candy for it. And like you, like yourself, I, I always loved John Candy. You know, going back to Stripes and these movies as a kid, I loved him, and he was great. Yeah, and SETV, and yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Oh, that, and you just nailed it. You got brought, brought something up, which just factors into the story. So basically, we it's about eight months later, and the funniest thing is that puberty had fully kicked in. So I didn't even look like Rusty in, in, in 95% of the movie that we'd already shot. You know, my voice dropped. I grew like, <laughs> you know what I mean? it was like, 
all this weird stuff kicked in when puberty kicks in. You remember how it is, guys. So you go from being like a little five foot two kid. Suddenly I'm like five, seven and I'm like gangly and I got pimples on my chin. And it was like eight months later. So we did this reshoot. So it was really funny. So I get to the set. The first thing I see is Chevy and Chevy brings it up right out of the way. He goes, nice pimple. How's puberty? (laughs) 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 He just embarrasses the shit out of me, which is kind of funny. That was typical Chevy. But then I see John Candy and he was just awesome. So what I shared with him, and this brings up the SCTV angle. Do you remember the Schmengi brothers on SCTV? That's that sketch he did with Eugene Levy. It was so funny. They played like two Polish co-hosts of a variety show live from Poland. It was called the Schmengi brothers. And they talk like this, the Schmengi brothers, Jos and yep. Stan Schmengi. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but what's so cool was that I shared with John and I met him for the first time that day, you know, we're at, at, uh, at Magic Mountain. I said, you know, I've always loved watching that. I actually watched it with, you know, at home a lot. I loved it. I loved SCTV, you know, even as a little kid in the 70s. He was so cool. He goes, we're going to make you an honorary Schmengi brother. You're Sten Schmengi. Oh. So, yeah. <laughs> so oh. he dubbed me Sten Schmengi, which was hilarious. But he was just a lovable guy, man. He was he was Uncle Buck. He was everything that you had hoped for, like you mentioned, Eric. He was a great guy. And so was Ramus. And, you know, the thing when I look back on my childhood and I, I remember working with these guys is I see the laughter in my mind's eye, you know, like laughing with Harold mm-hmm. Ramis, him laughing with the cast. And just both of them had a wonderful talent for sort of conspiring with the actors to make it better. And that's what was so cool about them. They were both brilliant comedic writers and great directors at the beginning of their careers. But they had that sense of collaboration, which was so key, you know. So, and then the other, right. the other funny anecdote was I was actually the only one who could fit with Mr. Candy in, in, the, uh, <laughs> in the roller coaster. Right. <laughs> so at the time, even though puberty kicked in hard, you know, I was still kind of skinnier than, than Dana Barron, who played my sister, who's still a great friend to this day. And then I guess Beverly and Chevy just couldn't fit with John. God bless him. So I was able to kind of, you know, both of us kind of squeezed ourselves into that first, uh, you know, the roller coaster there. And I just had a great time. I mean, I can see the, the images in my head of me covering his mouth, like he's going to throw up and all these different things. You know? Yep. Like great little moments. Yep. But, uh, he was just wonderful guy is my, my point. He was really a great guy. Very loving person. You may yeah. have already answered this question with a kind of a detour that happened in the middle of that story. But uh, I was curious about um, what your relationship was like with, with Chevy Chase on that film. Yeah. You hear stories that he's... Uh, he can be a little much to work with sometimes. So I'm, <laughs> yeah. And he was a father figure to you, you know, in that movie. Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of yeah. curious. No, totally. Well, back in 1982, you know, like I, I, as I said to you guys earlier, like I really honestly looked up to all those people because in the 70s, I'm 53 now. So in the 70s, it was like a big deal for me to watch SNL. Like I had to ask mom, you had to stay sure. up late. You, know, you had to like, you had to schedule it. This is like, you know when it was uh, appointment television before cable and streaming and everything. Right. So it was like a big deal to just even stay up and watch SNL. So for me, like I, I remember that cast so vividly, Chevy and Bill Murray and everybody, Garrett Morris and all the great. Gilda, yeah. yeah Aykroyd. Yeah. Right. I mean like Aykroyd genius, you know? So I just, I was just so enthralled to be a part of that film because I quickly learned that, you know, Maddie Simmons, who was a great producer and who had produced vacation you know, obviously he gave us all our starts. You know, when he had National Lampoon Magazine, it was John Hughes that was sending in short stories from Chicago. And he wound up developing a short story called Vacation 58, which was told through Rusty's eyes, by the way. So suddenly I'm, I'm surrounded by Maddie Simmons and, and Harold Ramis and then all these great stars. So I really looked up to Chevy and he was great. He was fun with me then, you know. I worked with him years later about, I don't know, about 10 years ago on Community. 
And right. Those, you did a few know, episodes of that. Yeah. 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 It was a fun experience too. So I don't like to disparage anybody. You know, I don't know what, what he's going through, or where his life's at, but I, 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 <laughs> right. and I always looked up to him, you know, so I, I kind of always responded like I was rusty, you know, just like a loving yeah. son, you know, I, I never want to talk shit about people. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sure. And, and we wouldn't, we wouldn't, we wouldn't want you to either. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't want anyone to talk shit. I fucking love Chevy Chase. It's not the thing. Like, <laughs> and, and so like, I don't like bad Chevy stories. I was hoping <laughs> you would have good ones. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's good. Yeah. No, yeah. I, um, I went to the set of community and I, I, I met Chevy there. Um, I think it must've been before uh, it was some, season three, I think is when I went. Um, yeah. and, yeah. Uh, but anyway, like I, I rem- and I forgive me, listeners. I've told the story once on the podcast before, but uh, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself. But uh, to Mike, this is like the best introduction to Chevy Chase one could ever hope for. Is I was sitting down, I was talking with uh, uh, Donald Glover, and we were doing an interview. So I like I was recording. So <laughs> the publicist in the middle of the interview is like walking by with Chevy, and she goes, "Hey, you know, I'm going to introduce you guys." And uh, and so I stand up to shake his hand and he goes, hello, I'm Sybil Shepherd's vagina. <laughs> and, and I'm just like, and I, I just couldn't, I was just laughing. And then Donald Glover without missing a beat next to me goes, oh, you don't look like I thought you would or something. <laughs> and, and I'm just like, this is, this is the coolest thing. You know, of course I'm doing the interview on like the library set of, you know, the show that I was already a fan of. And it was like right. the most surreal like the kind of memoir story, right? This is a yeah. story that you'd read in a Hollywood Babylon or something like it's like cool. just being yeah. in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Right on. No, I enjoyed, I loved working on community. I thought that was a great show. Like Dan. Oh, they're so great. They had great writers. It was almost such a pace of good comedic writing that you, you were almost like jogging to keep up. It was so fast paced the way it was. Oh, all yeah. And that cast was fantastic. And Donald was a oh, great guy. Yeah. Before I became a rock star, yeah. I worked with him. Couldn't have been a nicer guy. He was great. You mentioned that pace. Like one of the things I brought up is I'm a huge Preston Sturgis fan. And so like I brought up to Joel McHale and everybody, I'm like, like you realize you're getting this kind of old school screwball comedy uh, mm. dialogue with each other. That's why I love the show so much. And um, yeah, and that has another tie in. Like didn't mention him before talking about vacation, but Eddie Bracken was like a, a, reg- a Preston yeah. Sturgis regular. And right. You know, so it's it's interesting how your your life is seems to your career anyway seems to like have all these touchstones of all these great things that like I just personally you know worship. I'm a huge like screwball comedy nerd. So right, right. So, no, know. I appreciate that very much. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, no, it wasn't lost on me. Even as a kid, man, I remember just thinking like this is incredible. So you know, working with Imogene Coca or Brian Doyle Murray, there right. were so many people that, and I just felt loved and embraced by them all because I was just a little kid that you know had some comedic timing, I guess, and I just was just really excited to be around them all, you know, and it's also a different era too, because we actually made that trip, man. It was before blue screen and green screen and, you know, mm-hmm. went to Colorado. And then we all went to Arizona and then we all wound up in LA, you know? So it was really such a great, one of the great summers and, and not just work experiences, but like summers of my life, you know, cause I remember, just enjoying all that and just soaking it all in as a kid, you know? Well, I suppose we should probably start talking about some Stephen King stuff or our listeners yes. will, uh, will revolt yeah. against us. <laughs> um, we usually ask our guests what their Stephen King origin story is, which kind of means, you know, when when did he first pop up on your radar? I mean, you were kind of at that perfect age of like when King was coming into his own and becoming this kind of just known household name. Like, uh, so I'm curious, what was, what was it for you? Was it a movie or was it a book? Like, uh, you know what? what it's so it? funny. I think it actually predates the dead zone because when that came up and that opportunity was presented to me by Michael Piller, who's no longer with us, he was a great guy, the producer who um, gave me that opportunity. 
But when I think back and I jog my memory, I was a kid in junior high. And it's so funny. I think it was around the time, probably a little bit after that I first got hip to the Halloween franchise too. Because I remember watching mm-hmm. like on Showtime or Cinemax, you know, the Halloween movie. You're right. And then I also remember watching Carrie. So that would be my that would be my answer, guys, is that I remember seeing the trailer and also the film of Carrie on, on cable as a kid, which was, right. you know, it was like streaming now, right? It was a big deal. Then all of a sudden everybody had cable. And so that was my first, I think, recollection is just seeing, you know, um, those images of Sissy Spacek and the bloodied face and all that, which is kind of trippy, right. you know? And then cut to when I did the, the series, um, you know, I mentioned Michael Pillar. He was a great guy. He, he had an incredible career. He, he started out at an executive level in the television business in the 70s. And then he wound up just becoming a writer and then a producer. And he created Deep Space Nine and Voyager and all these other series. And he was a great gentleman. And what happened was at the time he contacted the agency that I was with. And I guess he had seen me play Bill Gates in the Pirates of Silicon Valley film. And that was in 99. So it was around about a year later yeah, that I got the offer and, and I uh, began work in Vancouver on the pilot for The Dead Zone. And it was just a great thrill. So what I did is I then read the novel. And, and it was also interesting to learn that Stephen King, as you guys know, had been a high school teacher right. and kind of a burgeoning writer. You know, so it's not unlike or dissimilar to John Hughes's background. You know, He had started out writing copy if you guys ever saw She's Having a Baby, that's really his story where he was, he mm-hmm. really was Kevin Bacon. He was at an ad agency and writing, you know, copy for commercials and then started sending in his stories. Well, same thing for King, you know, like in the late seventies, he was a high school teacher and he was just submitting his works to publishing houses and what have you. So it was really interesting to learn that it was kind of based on that, you know, the idea that, um, you know, he saw this, this accident that the Johnny Smith character has as a sort of portal to, to take audiences on this journey. So wherever he would kind of go in these psychic flashes was a, a great opportunity for him. You know, it was just a great opportunity to, when I did the dead zone it, at the time, it was a very um, kind of groundbreaking show in some ways, you know, the visual effects were really cool. And we just had a great crew again, that was really all in. We shot in Vancouver for five seasons and then the final season we shot in Montreal, but just a great experience that show. And it really gave me a chance to really you know, develop as an actor because in some episodes I'd be playing like five or six or seven roles, you know? Um, right. So it was just a great experience where I really grew as an actor. So I'm always uh, indebted to Mr. King, even though I haven't ever met him, you know, I'd love to meet him. Yeah. It's such a great idea for a show too. When you think about it, if you take like that X-Files format uh, and put right Johnny Smith in the middle of it, where you, you know, a, a person who can see the future, you know, with, right, on touch right. and help different people. But then he also has, all these like long arcing stories that cross multiple seasons, you know, much the same way the X-Files had like, you know, Mulder's sister and, you know, and, right. like the more I think about it, the more I'm like, that is such a, a like a brilliant nugget of an idea to make this, this book a series. Cause I never would have looked at it reading the book. It's like such a self-contained simple like story. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, That's a great point you made. You articulated that really well. I mean, you know, when I worked with Michael Pillar, he even brought up that as an example, Being, having come from the Star Trek universe where he was a, a, a show creator and worked with Roddenberry. He saw the Johnny Smith character as a portal to, to new opportunities, and he compared it to the Enterprise of Star Trek. You know, like his psychic ability allows us to go on these different places, you know, and give us latitude in terms of the storytelling, which was great. You know, my personal approach was it was to kind of treat each episode like it was a $50 million movie. In other words, have full respect for all the talents at at hand and everybody working on it and just make every episode as good as I could, you know, and it was a really simple thing, but 
you know, we went on to do 80 episodes of the show. So it was just a really great experience in my early 30s. Now, something I'm always fascinated by, Mike, is talking to people who have starred in King Properties and just kind of how useful or not useful the, the text is. I've talked to some people that say, oh, well, the the original text is great. Some people didn't even want to read it. And then some people were super obsessed with it and, you know, kind of use it to flesh out their characters. Um, so I'm curious where you fell in that sense. You know, you had to play Johnny Smith a lot longer than Walken, you know, yeah. had to, right? <laughs> Did that influence your your uh, performance at all? Or was it, you know, at a certain point, just what you were getting on the page from... Uh, uh, from the screenwriters. Well, it was no. It's a great question. I mean, I did. I went back and I read the novel, and I and I really appreciate that. And then I learned some more stuff about Stephen King, and it reminded me of John Hughes. And I'll get back to that as to as to how. But basically, John Hughes told me something many years ago when I was a kid. He said you have to write about what you know, and it obviously stuck in my head all these years later. But with King, it's a very interesting thing because he's all you know. He's from Maine. He lives there with his wife, and that's where he raised his kids. With respect to the dead zone, he was a high school teacher. So around the time that he was sending, uh, you know, his materials out to publishing houses in the late seventies and the whole thing, he was still a high school teacher. Mm-hmm. So there again, you see that you know writing about what you know kind of thing. So you know before he sold Carrie and before he sold the dead zone, he was in fact a high school teacher. So. I thought the book was great. I think I love the voice that he writes in. You know, I think people love his writing because it's very personal and you just feel like someone's talking you do in a way. So yeah, the, re- reading the book was very helpful. And I think in terms of Chris Walken, he's one of my favorite actors. You know, I think what the director, Rob Lieberman, who was a fantastic television director who who shot our pilot did was he he drew from some of the iconic images. Like we, you know, when the bed is on fire and, we, mm-hmm. and the girl is rescued based mm-hmm. on the ammunition that Johnny has. As you guys know, that was in the original film. I mean, the only thing I wanted to do was kind of take the pea coat and the cane, right? I kind of nicked the right. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's enough people that try to imitate Chris Walken, Robert De Niro, everybody else can, you know. So I was, of course, not going to try to imitate Walken in any way, but I've always loved him. And I think that that film holds up pretty well, you know. All um, right. But interesting note, you know, about Stephen King, you know, because like John Hughes, he, he, you know, writes about what he knows. And I even heard that he and his wife kept a pet cemetery in their house in Maine, in their backyard. So <laughs> it's very interesting how writers, uh, you know, kind of steal from life. You have to be careful when you're around them or what you say. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever get a chance to meet Walken, even like independent of this or you ever cross paths? No, with him? I never met him. I, I saw him a couple times and he, he's a very interesting guy. You know, he kind of gave me the, the vibe that he wanted to be left alone, <laughs> but he's great. You know I know what I mean? exactly what you're talking about. I, I went yeah, to yeah. I, I went to uh, see uh, Shakespeare in the Park in 2001. This is August of 2001 uh, in New York uh, nice. before everything changed. Uh, but I, I saw him there. He was in a production of The Seagull, and it, mm. it was an, a stacked cast. It was like Meryl Streep, John Goodman, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Natalie Portman, Kevin Klein. Good God, dude! Yeah, and right. and Walken and. Uh, and so I, you know, it was crazy just seeing these people. And Mike Nichols directed it, and so wow, uh, it it's like just yeah. the 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 pinnacle of like, okay, this is a real New York, you know, theatrical experience. Yeah. And afterwards, right. since it was in the park, everybody like just left for Shakespeare in the Park. For people who don't know, it's like in this little uh, round circular stage in the middle of uh, Central Park. And uh, so there is no like back door alleyway exit or whatever. So the actors just left afterwards. And like I got to chat up John Goodman and he was super drunk (laughs) and very lively and very fun to talk to. But like I was there, I was trying to meet Walken and like because I'm so obsessed with him. And he uh, he walks out and he's got the scraggly beard. and He's carrying like these two suitcases in my mind's eye. Maybe I'm, you know, changing something, you know, for so somehow it got mythologized in my 
my mind's eye, but like in my mind's eye, right. it is he's carrying like two like Titanic era, you know, like suitcases, you know, like old timey nineteen twenty suitcases. Yeah, maybe he brought his props yeah. to work. I don't know. What in, in each in each hand, and he just like I, I saw him walk up, and he saw me see him, and the look in his eye yeah. was exactly what you just said. It's just like. I don't want to fuck with this right now. And I'm just like, yeah. and I, you know, and I hope the look in my eye was fair enough. You know? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Feet distance is not enough probably for walking. Right. right. He probably needed a good, yeah, but that's cool. You, I respect people's privacy. Everybody works differently, but yeah, no, he's a great actor, you know, and I love him too, because he's one of these actors that's, he's even better in some bad movies, right? Like, and I've done a ton of bad movies. I'm not disparaging, but you know what I mean? Like he's incredible. I love him when he plays villains. I mean, he's really got a lot of versatility. But uh, yeah, he he chews up the scenery, man. I love him. He'll elevate like anything he's in. I think he gets the shit. Yeah, it's like, and you right. can tell. Like right. that's the mark of a great actor. It's not being good in a great movie with a great director and great cast. It's it's still being good in a movie where none of that is uh, there to support you. Yeah. Interesting point. Yeah. There's a general eeriness to Walken that I think. Yeah. Whether I think that you <laughs> were channeling your own version of that in the TV series, where you just have a very intense presence you know I, I don't think your your performance was informed that way i think that that character just requires that, <laughs> that sort of a that sort of a performance but that's that's something you guys both had in that in that role oh i appreciate it i mean it's interesting too because with that when i did that show i really stretched me as an actor i mean honestly i mean some scripts i would look at and i was like wow i don't know this kind of feels a little clunky or whatever but others were really interesting and phenomenal and then there were some episodes where i had multiple roles to play and the other thing that we we kind of created in that in the formatting of that show was that you know Johnny would not only have the visions but then he would go into the visions and sort of be a third party witness you know kind of watch mm-hmm. the person so it was a very interesting acting challenge on a lot of different levels to really be listening to really watch and just be present in scenes where I was in the vision watching you know the person who was having the the experience or whatnot and then in other episodes you know I had great opportunities to, you know, we did an episode that was almost about like a, a ritualistic killing, you know, and it was crazy. So there was a mm-hmm. lot of really interesting um, episodes, you know, in the 80 episodes that we did that really challenged me and forced me to really, you know, really deconstruct my scripts and really work on it. I really had to do my homework every night. I had to always think about how I was entering a scene, how I was leaving a scene. It gave me room to create and and try different things. And then from a technical standpoint too, like the camera work, we kind of fell into that kind of cool look and feel that uh, we had on the show. And I attribute that to our producers, but also we had great cameramen and we would work on those things together. So we would switch the frame rates. And when I would go into a vision, I would touch an object. It's actually called psychometry. It's a, a form of psychic you know, vision uh, talent where people can feel things through touch. And in the years since I did the show, and even while I was doing it, I met some people who were psychic at, at appearances and conventions that I appeared at. And I met a few people that actually, you know, have that ability. So there was a lot of different aspects to the show that made it fun creatively, yeah. that it was new new ground for us. So it was really a, a great experience that I felt I, I grew oh, in. So you're, you're a believer in right. that? I want to yeah. I want to dig at that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I want to dig at that for a minute. Sure, man. Like, what did you say? The um, About the camera yeah. work or? No, psycho, the, what oh, is the, it's called the psychometry. term? Psychometry. Like if someone psychometry. is psychometry. Yeah. Okay. I think I'm pronouncing the word correctly. Hopefully I'm not screwing it up, but yeah. Did, did these folks demonstrate this for you? They didn't in person, but I just, I would trust them in their word. I think I met two different gentlemen at different times that told me they had that ability. So it's the idea of being able to, you know, tap into a psychic ability through touch, through an object. So let's say you're holding an object of, of a potential criminal and you're working with a police department or something, mm-hmm. you know? 
So what, what was interesting is I, I was just kind of stumbling into those things. And then basically after the fact, I realized that, you know, when I met these two people that it's actually a form of, of psychic ability. And then back to the camera work, like for example, when we would switch the frame rates, we would then ramp it up in post-production. So I would touch an object and the cameraman would pan off my hand to my face. And then I would do one additional head move or something like that. But basically in post-production, it's kind of sounds boring, but in post-production, when you edit all that together and when then changing the frame rates and speeding up the footage, it created this, the visual look and feel of the show, which I thought for that time was pretty, uh, it was pretty forward thinking considering we shot it from 2001 to 2007. Right. So we had uh, in six years, we did like five or six seasons of it, 80 episodes. So it was a good run, man. I was really grateful for it. I've always kind of been curious about this for actors like yourself who have been on a long running series. And I'm going to count that many seasons as a long running series. Yeah. What is it like when that experience ends? I've got to assume that if you spend seven seasons or whatever with the same people doing the same job, you're very close, very tight knit by the end of the run. Isn't that very difficult? I would imagine that would really suck to just kind of say goodbye to everybody. Yeah. You know what it is? Like, you remember when we were kids and you go to camp or you're at the end of a school year, it's that kind of bittersweet thing. Like you hope you'll see people again. You don't know if you will. And you really right. want to acknowledge the time spent and the work you've done and shared, you know, the time doing. So it, it's interesting, you know, and on that show, I love my castmates. Chris Bruno, uh, Nicole DeBoer, um, John Adams were the key actors mm. that were in the core group. But, you know, we would joke about it because I really didn't get any days off. I was usually there on set. So I got really close with the crew, you know, the camera guys, everybody, you know. So it is. It's a, a very nice kind of – I think the hope is we endeavored to, to, to create it a family-like atmosphere because obviously in the perfect idyllic sense, everybody's welcomed, everybody's respected, that kind of thing. I mean, not all right. jobs mm -hmm. are like that, guys, as we know, right? So it's just – it's sometimes it's a crapshoot in life. But the thing is when, when you do have that synergy amongst people, it's great. And I think – to, to for a show to run that long or for a film like in this case halloween kills same thing it's just a real blessing from above when the energies and all the you know the synergy is there and people just sort of agree mm -hmm. to work right. well together you know what i mean it's, it's a conscious effort on everyone's part but it, it just depends so it's kind of a bittersweet thing you know it really is because you know there were long hours we did 12 14 hour days and you know we sh each season would be four or five months in a row of just hard work you know you're there long days but it was great because it found an audience, you know, and it was really gratifying and it was bittersweet because I, I grew to love a lot of the people that I worked with. That's where I met my now wife in Vancouver. And I loved being up in Canada too. People are great in Canada. They have a very much, uh, you know, where in America we live to work, they work to live, you know, they, they appreciate their work and their craft, but you know, the crew would be watching hockey games right. between takes and, you know, it's a real right. accident on living when you live up in Canada and you're working there too. So Canadians are great, man. They're great people. And uh, I have great respect and love. For it's so funny. I love it. That, that's a kind of a commonality when you travel overseas. You know, I've been lucky in my, my career to yeah. have like gotten to visit a lot of movie sets, active sets and uh, all over the world. Nice. And, you know, I've been to sets in England whenever there was a, uh, a football match on and the, it, it was just understood. I think it was one of the Kingsman movies. I think it might have been the second Kingsman that I was out there. And it was just understood that like from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. that day, they just weren't going to get anything done because everybody was just like crowded around, you know. The, <laughs> right, right. Because we're spoiled brats. You know, it's just soccer to us. It's one of the right. 55 sports. To right. them, football is everything. Yeah. Right? That's their thing. Yeah, I love no, that's it. And, cool. and in New Zealand, it's, it's rugby. Yeah. So, you know, they – on, oh, the, yeah. on the Hobbit, yeah, 
like there was a <laughs> there was a moment where they like literally just stopped and like canceled shooting for uh like half of a day so every and they like bought out like this ballroom or whatever to watch one of the uh the like final matches with the all blacks and stuff so it's like right. it was it's just kind of a right. you know a price of doing business you know in some places it was just like keep the right, crew happy right. and that's cool let them, let them, uh, rules. yeah no exactly well, that and catering too. The first way to piss off a crew is right. hire a bad caterer. That's not that never works. Good food on the set. Keep everybody. No safe. one wants their food fucked with, dude. Yeah, you, yeah, want exactly. a, you, you want the good snacks. You no can't doubt. be crafty. No can't be out yeah, here no. messing Just around. Bowl of exactly. rolls. But that is interesting, man. As you, like you said, as you've traveled, and, and again, it's no less of appreciation. They, they're great craftspeople, and they, and they love and appreciate the work. But there's uh, there's less of a pressure that I think we we're ingrained with in our country, right? It's like. We work uh, 50 weeks a year and then we go to Vegas right. for two weeks or whatever. You know. <laughs> when you're doing a, a long running show like that, did it ever happen that you got a script for an episode and you're just like, I don't like this one? Oh, like yeah. Uh, yeah. just the law of averages. Sooner or later, you had to hit one where you're like, I don't like this story. What well, do you do you in situations like that? Yeah, no, 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 you nailed it because sometimes that's what I was kind of insinuating before. Yeah, sometimes it felt like I was, it just felt borderline ridiculous, you know, Johnny mm-hmm. saves the world type of thing, you know, every week. Right. But it, it, you know, with respect to the gentleman that gave me the part, Michael Pillar, who's no longer with us, I mean, I just, again, I was so jazzed and, and I felt very, you know, empowered by the opportunity. So, you know, my mantra each week was to just treat each episode like a 50 or a hundred million dollar film and, and to literally just try to make each one better. I had very simple objectives and it did help and guide me in a way. So yeah, I mean, I definitely, I'm not going to lie. I definitely felt that some weeks I'm like, wow, this, we got to, is it, you know, Johnny saves everybody from dying at the mall. But again, when you're in, (laughs) (laughs) when you're in the saddle and you got to do your thing, you know, you just, that's what I've learned as an actor. You 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 got to make yourself believe it first. You got to really commit to those circumstances, you know. Um, and what I one of the tricks that I do is I like to just make the crew that first audience. It's nothing that I announce, but I just kind of draw upon that energy of, you know, all the crew that are that are standing around and and waiting for us to do something after they spent all this time setting up. So I I just kind of go for that. I kind of draw energy from the environment, the crew that I'm working with, and. You know, you just got to dig deep and, and figure out a way to make it work. But yeah, I definitely, I think it would it would fluctuate. Some weeks I thought the episodes were phenomenal and, and we did like, you know, cinematic level work. Um, mm-hmm. And other weeks, yeah, it was more challenging. The show did not get a, like an official series finale, right? Like it was yeah. expected to be. Uh, so how did you feel about that at the time? And how do you feel about it now? Like okay. I have a really clear cut answer for that because I've done a lot of comic cons and appearances over the last decade since. Sure. I, it was very disheartening for fans of the show because I felt, and I've heard this from scores of them that it was kind of like abrupt the ending. And the reason why was I think that USA network didn't know about the pickup. We were basically airing kind of like spring into the summer. So mm-hmm. for basic cable, you know, USA Network at the time, they were great and very supportive and, and gave us a lot of latitude to make the show. But it was just timed in a really odd way. So all our episodes would air in the summer. And this is before streaming where you could just get anything all the time, anytime you wanted it, right? You could just access any form of entertainment, anything you want on the streamers. So now what's interesting is that our show, when it when it blew up and it started to do very well back in 01, 02, it then led to sort of a... Uh, a change. There was a bit of a seismic shift in the TV business. In other words, instead of just programming where, you know, years ago it'd be like, okay, the new fall shows are here, you know, and then we'd have mid season replacements. And they had this kind of structured way of looking at a television season based on ratings and how things did and how they played. 
So that's all gone now, right? Because of streaming, anybody can get whatever they want, or we can binge watch an entire season, whatever you want. So I think it was a it was a strange thing because in that last season we had to shoot it as if we were going to come to an end, but we didn't know. And then unfortunately, it did come to an end in its sixth season. So yeah, it was a bummer for fans because they felt it was a little abrupt and that it deserved a, a bit of a better ending uh, between myself and the characters Nicole played. You know, was the mother of my child, and then. Um, and then obviously the relationship with Stilson, right. you know, working with Sean Patrick Flannery, he was a talented yeah. actor. So, yeah, I think people, they, they had higher hopes for a, a more impactful ending than we may have delivered. So that was a, hmm. that's something I definitely heard from fans in the years since. But, you know, I was just grateful for the run, man. It was a good, uh, a good show and I'm very proud of it. And, you know, I struggled through my 20s because I had this very, you know, fantastic uh, beginning to my career as a little kid. I mean, I'm 14 doing vacation. And then I work with John Hughes from the time I'm 15 till 18. And then because of Hughes, I, I had a career suddenly. So it's interesting to look back on it now. You know, I'm just grateful that I had a show because through my twenties, it was, it was hard for people to kind of figure out what to do with me, I think in the business. So I just kept working and I kept chipping away at it. I never gave up on myself. And, you know, um, I would do independent films. I would do guest starring shots and and what I think it does is that over time, it cultivates a, a certain working humility. You know, you feel appreciative. So back in the, you know, early 90s, when I'd get like Murder, She Wrote or Diagnosis Murder, and I got to work with legends like Angela Lansbury or Dick Van Dyke, yeah. man, you appreciate those things. Because when the work's harder to come by and you get a job like that, it feels like you just got, you know, a, a huge studio movie. So I think, you know, in retrospect, it's given me um, – a good shot of humility, you know, to really treat the work with respect and uh, you never know where you're going to wind up. So by the time that show came along, I was like, hand me the ball. I'm ready because mm -hmm. I was about 32. Yeah, right. when I got the job. You know, So the fact that Michael Piller went out of his way, he had seen me play Gates in the uh, parts of Silicon Valley and that garnered like five Emmy nominations, which was a real blessing. That was great. And I think it was on the strength of that work that he just offered me the part. And I won't name what agency it was, but do you believe one of the big ones actually oh, wow. turned it down on my behalf? So agents... You, need to, you never know what you're going to get, you know, but it was because of Michael Piller being so consistent and, and being a man of dignity and, you know, following through, he really wanted me to star in the show. And so he kept at it and he got through to this unnamed agency. And, uh, you know, I wound up doing the pilot and going up to Vancouver. And I really just remember pouring myself into it. I really wanted it to be great. I wanted it to affect people. I knew they had given me a great role and I really wanted it to become a show. So, you know, uh, hard work and, and saying my prayers, <laughs> right. you know, and just staying at it, you know, really. I don't think I would have handled that well. No, you know, no, fuck no, dude. Like if it, I, I, well, I think of myself at like, you know, I'm listening to you talking. I'm thinking of myself at 14, 15, just an absolute nightmare of a, of a teenager, you, you know? And, oh yeah. You know? Um, and always getting in trouble, always getting into some sort of, hijinks fucking uh, all kinds of shit i got into so i imagine combining <laughs> me you know with a meteoric rise in a number of feature films and i think i would have been absolutely i don't think i would have survived that process that's funny well you know what man i joke around with my family and friends it's like uh my parents joke with me growing up was too much too soon you had too much too soon and then the other the flip side of the joke was well it's better than you know flipping mm -hmm. fries at wendy's not that there's anything wrong with that or you know but sure. uh, I just, uh, it took me a while to process it. I mean, honestly, I, I went through a lot. It was a lot of life experience, a lot of stimulation from a young age, being a part of these movies. And all of a sudden, by my mid-teens, you know, people knowing my name. And it was awkward. It was awkward just like being in high school was awkward for all of us, you know. So I, 
But over yeah. time, I learned to appreciate it. And, uh, you know, it did take me a while to process, you know, let's say age 15 through 20. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, it takes time to reflect right. on things and put it in perspective. But, yeah, it was a wild ride, man, to say the least. <laughs> Another thing I'd like to ask you about is um, you're the godfather of Robert Downey Jr.'s baby or son, I <laughs> yeah, should say. You know, yeah. he's not uh-huh. forever a baby. Um, <laughs> but – I'm assuming y'all became friends on mm-hmm. Johnny Be Good. Is that correct? It's actually, weird science before that. So, oh, right, 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 right. Yeah. Yes, fuck. And then you were on Saturday Night Live together. Well, here's what happened after we did Weird Science. This is '84, '85. Right. We were in LA and we hit it off. We became friends, good buddies. And then Robert Russler is still a friend too. He was his sidekick mm-hmm. in the film. Uh, and Paxton, God rest his soul, he was such a great guy, man. He really was. Awesome. Oh yeah. So we were all running buddies. Like honestly, we'd hang out, we'd get into trouble, we'd go drinking, and go wild joyriding. We, you know, we got into some trouble ourselves during that making of that film. <laughs> it was pretty wild. <laughs> Not with Robert Downey Jr. No, him. <laughs> so what happened, guys, is after that, I went to L.A. and I had a movie coming out called Out of Bounds. It was a Columbia Pictures movie at eighteen. Yeah, it was a. I always think of that Sinatra line when I was 17. It was a very good year because I did SNL and then I went into this film and they actually had a very, I had a special deal with Lauren and NBC, which they were kind enough to accommodate me. I did like 12 of the 18 episodes that we did of of SNL um, or 14 of 22 or something like that. So I could do this movie out of bounds. So anyway, after I finished that film, Donnie came back to LA where he lived at the time he was with Sarah Jessica Parker and they were living together and we decided we wanted to write a script together. So we, we called on his dad, yeah. who's a, who's a legendary guy. He unfortunately just passed this last year. Yeah, great yeah. Guy, no, Putney, Putney Swope is, is mm-hmm. one of my favorites. That's, that's a ridiculously good movie. Oh, me yeah. too, man. Me too. Oh, it is. And that's one of the things we would always joke with him. We would literally quote lines from, from Putney Swope. Now here's the context. So Downey and I get together. We, we roped his dad into writing the script with us. Script has never been seen by very few people. It's called Seth and McGuigan. Okay. So, and this is our opening. So we go to LA. I'm, I'm, I'm writing with Robert and his father, and I'm living at the Chateau Marmont. I'm 18 years old, right? I'm a kid out there in LA. And uh, the funniest thing, forget about what the script was, but after five or six weeks of writing this script, Downey Sr. looked at Downey Jr. and on, he went, screw this piece of shit. He goes, this movie should be about two punk actors and an aging director trying to write a screenplay at the Chateau Marmont. <laughs> <laughs> And we laughed our asses off. But so that's how that happened. You know, like I, it was a crazy year, you know, so 18 was wild. But I, that was one of the great experiences of my life because just and Downey Senior also called it the lame table. So after we, we, we'd hang out and we'd order lunch and we'd write whatever we could write, we'd have a morning session, we'd have lunch and an afternoon session. Downey Senior always referred to it as the lame table. He goes, all right, we'll meet back here at the lame table tomorrow. <laughs> so he was just the greatest. You know, he really was a great guy. But yeah, so Downey and I have been friends since then, man, since 84, 85, and we're still great friends. And his wife is an amazing person who's really been instrumental in his resurgence and his yeah. great success. So he's just That's, yeah, he's really That's got to be a like an interesting person to just be friends with. And then his last, what, 15 years? Amazing. Are, it, amazing. What a fucking comeback story. Yeah, that I mean, guy, I, I think honestly in the history of our business, right? So Hollywood movies started being made in 1905, the late 1800s, if you're the Lumiere brothers or whatever. But like Hollywood starts, whatever. I mean, like in the history of Hollywood in 100 plus years, it's got to be the greatest comeback ever. You know, oh, what yeah. we did. So, Seriously. I mean, I can't I mean, think of another. Yeah. Usually it does not work out like that. Totally. Totally. Usually, oh. usually when you fuck up that bad. You're pretty much out, and it's right. 
you know, you see it with other actors or actresses where they'll get other chances and you can tell they're just not, they're still not all there. No, sadly, that's true. You know, and in my life too, when I look back, I've met a lot of child actors who I was watching when I was a kid, not just adults, but child actors mm -hmm. that sadly, you know, Dana Plato or different people from Todd Bridges. You know, like I met a lot of these people, but I never forgot because I was a kid watching those people. But you're right. it's a, It can be very unforgiving business. And I think that Downey had always accumulated such love and warmth from people, despite the challenges and the difficulties he went through personally, because his work was so good and he was such a fun, loving guy. So we all knew, like even when we were doing Weird Science, like this guy's a star, man. He's so funny. He would just ad lib stuff. I mean, the stuff, for example, in the mall when they're mocking the two girls and the girls are in the foreground and they're making all the goofy ass faces in the background, all that kind of shit. Like that was them, man. Like Downey was hilarious. He always was really funny and gifted. So to see this amazing comeback, thanks to friends of his like Favreau and the support he had from other people, even before that, like Mel Gibson and other people, just an amazing turn of events, yeah. you know. And I remember he said something to me about five years ago before we started working on a TV show we were developing for a couple of years. You know, he said, well, you know, if you do you do 75 movies, something's got to hit. So he was joking about the success <laughs> of Iron Man. But you know what? When you look back at his career, it's not unlike someone like Johnny Depp. Again, recently vilified in the last few years for personal reasons we don't need to get into. But at the same time, a great actor, mm -hmm. like truly a great actor. And you look at the work. If you go back, you look like two broke girls and a guy. I mean, all these movies that this guy did, he's phenomenal. Yeah. Robert has been phenomenal in so many movies. So I think there was a lot of goodwill and love and people wanted to see him personally come back. Do you know what I mean? So I think that that contributed because um, his story is amazing. You know, he really right. is what he's been through. And even starting with his dad, his dad was this underground filmmaker, as you guys know, in the 70s. And he was appearing in his films when he was like four or five years yeah. old. Mm -hmm. He is a mm -hmm. true veteran, but he's never changed, man. He's a great guy. He always has been. He always will be. And that's that's the true testament. He's got great character. and People love him, yeah. you know, for those reasons. Just his talent. It cuts through, you know. Before we, we uh, start the wrapping up phase, you mentioned um, Stilson. And, and I kind of like to go back to Dead Zone here at the end. Um, sure. I'm fascinated by this character and I'm fascinated by the Dead Zone as a story just by itself, because there's a few Stephen King books that are like Pet Cemetery, the Dead Zone, where there's just this right. sense of doom and dread and there's nothing, you, you know, that it's not going to have a, a, a happy ending. You know, Johnny Smith isn't going to be retiring in the countryside with the love of his life. You know, the, the his right. life has changed and something that's really fascinating about the Dead Zone in particular is it so grounded in that one event? You, you take the psychic shit out of it, and just the fact that he was, you know, in a position where he was happy in his work, he was about to marry his sweetheart, and then the accident happens, and he just—you just have the coma part of it, right. and you wake up, and his life is completely changed, and will never be the same, and he can never get it back, no matter how much he wants it. To me, that's a fascinating starting place for a character, and then when you have you throw Stilson into the mix, where he's probably the outside of maybe Randall flag from the stand, you know, he's probably the most dangerous Stephen yeah. King villain. Like he's also one of the most real Stephen King villain. Like, yeah, you know, that kind of yeah. populist uh, power hungry, uh, you know, the giving right. the wrong person, that kind of power, um, right. you know, the power of a presidency, you know, rings very true to a lot of people. And, and no matter, you know, for, for liberals like us, you know, we can easily project Trump onto it. And I assume all the people on the other side of the aisle see him and, and think that some, some, you know, lefty, you know, president or whatever that, that has right. too much power and, yeah. and they're scared of a polarity. Um, right. But uh, yeah. you know, I don't know, there's just something about that. And I, what I really loved about what you guys did on the TV show was that, you know, in the movie, Martin Sheen has to, in a very short amount of time go, okay, this guy's a, you know, 
uh, a scary, you know, piece of shit. Uh, And you actually, when you go back and watch the Cronenberg movie, it's only like two or three scenes where he has to fully go, okay, this guy, holy shit has to be stopped. But what's really amazing about what you guys did in the show was, was there was a slow build up to the Stilson that Martin Sheen was in the movie. Like you actually get, to feel this guy as a character and you like him at the beginning and you like see how he, he became this populist guy. So I, I don't know if there's a question buried in all that rambling, but the no, topic is on the cool. table. I like the points. You made. Yeah, no, I appreciate it, man. I like your analysis of it. I think what, you know, because we had a hit and I think at the time it got some really good numbers for back in 2001, it was strong. I mean, it was like six or 7 million people that watched the pilot. So we were just excited that we had, we got the green light. And at the time I was working for Jeff Wachtel, Bonnie Hammer, USA Network. So they were really great. I got to know those people and spent time with them. So they really cut us loose to make the show. But I think once we knew that we had a season and seasons ahead of us, I think that's, that's really kind of the answer that we knew we could kind of create long arcs, you know, like for example, what you said with Stilson. And he was great to work with. I like Sean Patrick a lot. He's a talented guy and very funny guy too in person. He had a great sense of humor. So you're right. It had all those elements. And I think that that was something that we were doing kind of a slow build on. And I remember this, these episodes where I was having visions of him and his ultimate corrupt personality, so to speak, as a politician. And it was all interesting stuff, you know. And I remember one particular episode we were doing, we were shooting it somewhere in, in Vancouver that had a monument that looked similar enough to like a portion of the Washington Monument, but it's supposed to be the Washington Monument in the episode. And I touch it and I have a vision of Stilson, you know, just kind of becoming this evil politician that he was, you know, presented as. So it was very interesting. Yeah. I mean, it it was fun. And And I think sometimes when I have a nemesis or an actor like that, where I have that kind of dynamic to play, it's better to kind of just meet them on screen, you know, and I've felt that at different points in my life, different jobs I've worked on, different movies and shows. But I did a little bit of that with Dead Zone. But also, Sean and I just got along. We're just two Irishmen. So he's, he's got a great sense of humor. He was often joking around. So it, was hard to, it was hard to be all mad. It be like, oh, man, I got to hate this guy. No, but he was a great guy. He was a fun guy to work with. This is usually the point in the show where we are. allow our guests to pitch or tease whatever they've got coming up sure. next. Uh, we have made no small deal of Halloween on this show over the past couple of weeks. <laughs> you are closing out this, uh, this series of, of guest spots from the movie. So I guess I'll let you put the button on Halloween okay. kills for this this sure. run of episodes. Like, what are you hoping people take away from this movie? You know, yeah. uh, how are you feeling about it? I'm I'm sure it's going to open big. Where's your Where's your head at? How are you feeling? I appreciate that. Let me just take a temperature here. I I feel really excited, man. I mean, I, I really do because I've I was so pumped when I got the part, and like I said, it felt like a real kind of hero's journey heroic part to me and you know in fairness to the other actors it's the similar arc for all of us like so everybody has this trajectory to follow the idea that the town comes together and they've decided to not just be survivors or just victims anymore that they're going to fight they're going to unify it was all really well intended and you know when you see the film that goes in different directions as a film unfolds you know but I think it was it was a great experience for me. I really I genuinely love to work with David Gordon Green. He's a great guy, and he couldn't be more cool and down to earth. The, all the creative people that I worked with was great. So I really had a great time. I really attacked it in terms of my work and just hit the ground running with it. Um, so I'm really excited. But the thing that makes it even better is just knowing that the audience is there waiting for it. Because I think a lot of times we get lost in the promotion or the business aspects of the business and all that stuff. And we forget movies are for audiences, man. And without audiences, they don't exist, you know? And, yeah, you know, even back a hundred years ago, we were talking about earlier, like, 
you know, before films were talkies, people would, they were a diversion on your way home from work. You'd pay a nickel, you'd go see a silent film and you'd see some slapstick comedian or whatever. So the idea that the audience is really being serviced here, that David and, and the whole team put something together that I think will really have high impact for people that love this franchise for 43 years running. Again, just that excitement of knowing I feel really good about the work I did and also equally, if not more, is that excitement that the audience has and the anticipation for this movie. So it's really exciting for me. And then the other thing is too, being a part of a franchise, like I, you know, I, I was in the dark night, but I, I had a smaller role and it wasn't that much work for me. So this is the first time I've been part of something that people were waiting for. Do you know what I mean? So it's that thing too. Of right. Just, right. What excitement, man. It really is. It's <clears throat> genuine. And here I am at 53. I didn't, you know, I feel like I waited my whole career for this movie to some extent. And I've never been more excited to answer it point blank, like of any project that I've ever been a part of. I really am the most excited for this, for the reasons I mentioned. The audience is waiting. They're super pumped about it. And just judging by the the premiere we had the other night in Hollywood at Man's Chinese Theater, I mean, it's like a dream, you know, it's like dream stuff, man. You know what I mean? So it's not lost. Yeah, I saw y'all out there in costumes and shit. Yeah. Were, were you wearing a costume? Well, I didn't my see wife it. And I, we went as Bonnie and Clyde, but I just can't stand wearing hats. So I just took it off after that. <laughs> it's so funny. Jamie Lee Lee looked at me when I saw her backstage. She's like, well, what the hell? What costume are you wearing? She kind of almost mad at me. I was like, damn, uh-huh. sorry, Jamie Lee. I didn't send you the memo about Bonnie and Clyde. I didn't know. Yeah. Jamie is very stern. Oh, she was. Uh, well, yeah, she can be. She can be. She was funny, though. She's got a great sense of humor, man. She was fun. But yeah, she was yeah. doing her thing. She was dressed as her mom from Psycho, which I thought was a great choice. Judy Greer looked great. She was there as Annie Hall. And uh, my wife and I were Bonnie and Clyde. But I got rid of the Stetson pretty early on. I just feel like a dork. I feel like someone who shouldn't wear a cowboy hat when, I, when he puts a cowboy hat on when I had a Stetson on. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I'm with you on this hat thing. <laughs> <laughs> I I cannot wear a hat and not the only hat that I can comfortably wear and feel yeah. like I don't look like a complete idiot is like right. like a skull cap or a beanie and right. I'll wear those like in the winter I don't know right. why I I, I gravitate you, right? or a ball like cap maybe backwards right other than that I'm I like, can't e- I can't even fuck with a ball cap man my yeah? head is just a weird ass shape <laughs> is the thing if you put a ball cap on me it looks like I don't I don't know if anyone else feels this way, but when I look in the mirror, it looks like it makes my face shorter. Like my whole head is like smaller, which is fucking it's a weird look, dude. I don't like it. So I'm with you on this. And I don't think I'd look good in a cowboy hat either. Right, right. I feel the same way. I think not since like 1940s movies have they really looked that good on people. But anyway, yeah, my wife and I joke with each other, too, because we both joke about who has a bigger head. I always lose. I got a giant cranium. So I feel the same way. I don't know. I just feel goofy in the hat. But anyway, we showed up as Monty <laughs> Clyde at least. <laughs> threat. I like it. She looked I, I like There have been moments like I was a, 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 an extra. I was visiting uh, the King Kong set. Peter Jackson was like, hey, we're going to throw you in the scene and Kong's going to kill you on this this train. And I'm like, hell yeah, I'll do it. And uh, and so the, I had to do the whole like 1920s, you know, 30s era clothing and the hat. Yeah. And, like I listen, I like it. I don't know if I look good in a in a fedora, but like I actually like it. But the thing is, is I don't like it enough to be the only asshole out there you know that one guy walking around target wearing a a three-piece suit that's and a, hilarious right and it's so funny because like since the 1940s right that's i think that's what it is i think you just hit it on the head it's like in the 30s and 40s everybody wore hats so nobody looked you know what i mean until you took it off everybody was like there was a uniformity right. to it you're right and it's like, these days you see someone with a stetson you're like yeah nice job dick tracy what are you doing i'll <laughs> <laughs> talk into my apple watch yeah <laughs> I wish I I do wish uh, well not for me because I think I would look bad in one but I do wish hats would make it come back like yeah like it, like fedoras and the like have been co opted by vaping dudes or 
you know, pick up artists at like a dive bar. It's just the worst shit every time. You see it. That's so funny. I know because you look at old black and white photos, you're like, damn, people look good then. They might have been a lot shorter 50 years yeah. ago, but people had style. <laughs> <Right. laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for for being here. This was uh, this was this was a real honor to talk thank to you. you. We we both grew up with your movies, as I said earlier. And it's awesome, man. man you are you you're a very nice gentleman, and thank you for being here. Thanks, guys. Back at you, man. I enjoyed it. And thank you for the opportunity. And keep rocking, man. Keep going. We'll do this again. Many thanks to Anthony Michael Hall, or as he likes to be called, Mike. We learned that uh, during that crazy recording <laughs> recording schedule. We're going to pull back the curtain a little bit here, Scott, and tell, yeah, tell, tell them what listeners. happened. Tell them. We recorded that over three different rooms in three different recording <laughs> sessions uh because uh internet difficulties and zencaster fuck-ups and and all sorts of different things kind of converged on this one thing it was the kink cast episode that the gods didn't want you to hear but we made it happen involved in having anthony michael hall going to different locations and shit to record this man was a a professional and could not have been more uh what's the word gracious about the entire thing yeah, no, he he rolled with a lot of punches in a way that it would have been very easy for this to have been yeah, no 20 shit. minutes of of stuff that we were able to get. And then he goes, nah, guys, I'm good. And that could have been it. <laughs> could have been it. But no, he uh, made sure like, he recorded half of this in Los Angeles, another half in New York. It, it is a miracle that this episode actually came out. So we are very <laughs> grateful to him <laughs> for for sticking with it. And while we're here at the end of this this series of Halloween Kills episodes that we've been doing, I, I want to give another shout out to uh, Damien over at Universal. He's the rep that helped us put this whole thing together. He rolled with some punches himself along the way. We are just really, really thankful for um, this last last series of guests. It, we we had a blast doing this. Oh but, yeah, no, been great. Uh, and now we're we're kind of leaving the Halloween Kills era behind us and yes. looking forward. And uh, we will be looking forward with a great episode next week. The mm -hmm. topic will be Rose Matter, which is a book that has not yet been adapted or discussed on the show. It's a much derided book. Um, and I think that all of us kind of came at it, you know, with this revisit going, well, maybe this, this book isn't as bad as its reputation is. To do that episode with us, we are bringing back a very beloved KingCast returning guest. KingCast guest royalty, my friends. You know, there was a question going around lately about the the Stephen King icon, like Stephen King horror villains that would be mm -hmm. on the Mount Rushmore. I was trying to figure out what the the King cast Mount Rushmore of guests is. Mm. Uh, that's probably not something we want to speculate about on the air because <laughs> we might hurt someone's feelings. But uh, right. I think this this person is is maybe in the running to uh, to be on there for sure. When I say maybe, definitely in the running. It's a it's a good episode, and my opinion drastically changed in revisiting this title. Yeah, so it'll be an interesting title. It's a downer of a book, really, because it's all about domestic abuse. Mm -hmm. uh, but our guest brings some good insight. I think that we appreciated a lot more of this book on our revisit. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to tackling it. And uh, over on the Patreon this week, we're announcing uh, our latest installments of the King by the Decade series. We we did one of these a uh, month or two ago with our friend uh, Louis Peitzman, former host of a Stephen King podcast himself uh, and a great appreciator of King's work who has the context to talk about this man's work uh, by the decade. Uh, we went through the 70s last time. This time up, it's the 80s. And uh, who? Uh, it's a long episode. It's Very a long, long episode. Very long. Yeah. 
Yeah, so we we go year by year through the 1980s, talking about the Stephen King adaptations that hit screens, talking about the Stephen King novels that were on shelves, and we try to go through and find like kind of the best year for King within the decade. Then maybe make a case that this could be the best decade for Stephen King. Right. So lots and lots and lots lots of stuff. There are some years that have like six things that that came out, either like three movies and three books or whatnot. There's there is crazy crazy amount of stuff to go over. So it is a lengthy episode for our bonus uh, Patreon episode this Friday. Yes. And you can find us over at patreon.com backslash the Kingcast. And for those of you who aren't aware, we recently launched a merch store with our friends over at content 19. That's uh, K a dash T E T one nine dot net. They have a little, little Kingcast boutique set up in their online store, officially licensed Stephen King t-shirts and other kinds of merchandise. Go over there, have a look around, see if there's not a uh, a King Cat shirt that doesn't uh, strike your fancy. Comfy, fuzzy looking hoodies over there too. It's fall; it's starting to get chilly. It's still uh, no, you know, you need one. Still no fanny packs. Still no, no fanny, fanny packs. That's we're gonna have to take that up with with Cotter, Yeah, we're gonna but. save that for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> the official King Cat Christmas fanny pack. Yeah, <laughs> and then and we'll we'll offer a free T-shirt to anybody that can get Dwayne Johnson to pose with it. Mm-hmm. And then you, when you open up the little flap on it, it plays the theme song <laughs> for the King Cast. Or it just sure. yells, "The ice is gonna break at you when you." Or it does this. <laughs> <laughs> we have lots uh, of great ideas here, yes. as you can tell. Just fountain great ideas <laughs> over here. All right, so we'll see all you guys next week on the main feed for Rose Matter, and we'll see you this Friday on the Patreon for a very long, in-depth episode on the 1980s through the lens of Stephen King. Adios, folks. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. Thank you.